You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Grace Saves All podcast. I'm continuing my conversation today with Peter Hyatt, and what we're going to do now is turn to the topic of time, because how we approach time and our understanding of eternity and the Greek words aeon and aeonios have a lot to do with having a better understanding of, of what's going on. And, and so, Peter, why don't, I, why don't you just uh, start telling us about how it was that you started come, becoming aware of this issue of time in relation to your understanding of the gospel and, and how the Bible is talking about time. Yeah, well, I think early on, I, I remember going on a retreat with Juan Carlos Ortiz talking about forgiveness and our relationship with God and that God sees us outside of time. So I, I think I I had a, a picture of that early on. Um, as I began wrestling with scripture, though, I began to realize that uh, scripture talks about time in a way that we don't normally talk about time. Mm-hmm. Um I think because I have an undergraduate degree in geology from the University of Colorado and uh, I took some some physics, I, I I mean I I don't know you know I'm not an expert in any of these things, but I'm also not scared of them. So I spent my time around a lot of science people and I was trained in the sciences. And um, there's a fascinating thing that's happened in the last few hundred years in our culture and in science. And it helps to see it in order to go back and read scripture. Because a lot of times when people say they take the Bible literally, I think what they actually mean by that is they take it according to a 20th century understanding of science, which is mm-hmm. just ironic. So the church, in in the 20th century, the church battled science after the Scopes monkey trial and the whole argument around evolution and really sort of lost in the Scopes monkey trial. And I think the church um, reacted in in two ways. One is by trying to be more scientific, according to 20th century science, and then also by becoming anti-intellectual, which, which is just bizarre. But that's a, that's a big conversation. But mm-hmm. in, I think in the 20th century, pe- people like, um, oh gosh, I'm looking at his name. He did the cosmos. Remember the guy who did this story, the cosmos? Carl um, Sagan. He would always, yeah, yeah. Carl Sagan. He would say um, something about uh, this is all there is, was, or ever will be. And he knew that wasn't true. Um, it, the big bang had already been postulated and scientists had been talking about it, that, that space and time themselves had a beginning, which is a really hard concept for us to get our head around. Mm-hmm. In the 20th century, um, well, since kind of the Enlightenment, people have been taught that 
time is really all there is, space and time. So when people would get to Bible verses like before Ab- when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, they'd say, oh, well, that's just kind of a metaphor. He doesn't really mean that because th- that, that can't be true. And when God says, I am that I am, same yesterday, today, and forever, um, that, that God himself is the author of time, we, we really stop believing that because of science. Ironically, in the 21st century, when this happened in the 20th century, science um, said, well, actually, that's not true. Space mm-hmm. and time themselves had a, an ex- a beginning. And, now, and, and that's kind of science on the macro level. So Einstein's theories of relativity reveal that not only reveal it we have experiments that show it it's it's really quite remarkable and all of our gps systems your your you know way your map in your car mm-hmm. that all takes relativity into account or else all of our maps would be messed up because of the because they're getting signals from satellites and the distance is great enough that um you have to account for the relativity of space and time. But even now on the quantum level, that if you look up, if you really want to do something fun, look up on YouTube, the delayed choice quantum eraser experiment. It's utterly mind boggling. But basically the, the, the simple conclusion from it is that the choices we make can make a difference in the past. It's just crazy stuff that science is discovering. Anyway, <laughs> it's it's revealing that time is not simply this linear progression that goes on forever and ever, that it had a beginning and there is a reality that somehow is outside of of time. Um, so I know I'm talking too long. So no, yeah, no, 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 no. There was just something I, that, that I wanted to, to, to put in here and that I have been, I'm, I'm reading John Bear's a new translation of origins uh, first principles yeah and and uh it's a wonderful it's a wonderful work and i was reading uh, origins conclusions and basically what he was saying is is that the father and the son and the spirit there was never a time when they were not as a matter of fact they're beyond they're outside they're they're beyond time and the, what happened is is that god created the aeons in, in order to accomplish his purposes yeah. And there will be a time when the aeons have run their course, and then uh, we will be all in all, and then we will be beyond the aeons at that point too. But he said that time is something, time is just a tool. The aeons are just tools that God uses. So God is the God of the aeons. God is Aeonian. Yeah. yeah. And well, it's, it's yeah. just a different, but, but what's interesting about that is that such that goes along with what you're talking about. Yeah, it's hugely important. And this is why, you know, I have a a lot of friends in this kind of movement and a lot of them, I think, don't want to talk about this or, or they, they don't have this concept. So the first thing, what I'm saying is that now science itself is saying, sorry, we were wrong about space and time. They won't say that because everybody's proud, but that's the truth. Um, that we were wrong about space and time. There is this thing outside of, see, now here's what's so hard about talking about it. The moment I say outside, I'm assuming a spatial paradigm, right? Because of all, all of our prepositions assume space. So mm-hmm. all of our prepositions like in, on, before, at, they're all metaphorical and analogical in some sense to the reality that scripture is attesting to. And this is, this is where it becomes so hard because all of our, our words are not adequate. And so the Bible has words like 
um, holy, which really means beyond what we can comprehend or unusual or strange, well, God is holy and God is also eternal. The word eternal is a fascinating word, um, and, and I don't think we've translated it well. First, let me say, we don't know what eternal means in English. So if you look it up in a, in a dictionary, there will often mm-hmm. be two or three definitions, and they all contradict each other. Right. So there's this other word in Scripture, the chronos, where we get our word chronology. And a chronology is linear time that moves, you know, so you have a, you have a watch, which is a, the old word is a chronometer or whatever, right? So there are all these words mm-hmm. that have to do with chronological chronological time and uh you have it it, scripture talks about the beginning of time and the end of time and in fact it says jesus is the beginning of time and the end of time and like origin says like scripture says god well scripture talks about it this way that we have come to the end of the ages that we come to the end of the ages in christ so there's an end to the ages that means that time as we're experiencing it now just cannot go on endlessly so here this is this is part of the problem with talking about endless or eternal conscious torment yeah in some sense i would say i do believe in eternal conscious torment if by that you mean ionios conscious torment i do not believe in endless conscious torment um, because there's nothing that's endless. There's an end to all things, which is Jesus, and right. we will all be filled with Jesus. So it, it's so, funny because you're sounding very modern and very ancient all at the same time now. Yeah, exactly. So this is what I try to say to people. It's it's like, look, modern science, or and I mean by modern science, what we know in the 21st century, what was discovered in the 20th century, allows us to just take the Bible literally. But by literal, I don't mean according to our old concepts of space and time. I mean, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, he really means it. That's take that, take that seriously or take that literally. So the way scripture views time, this is what I argue. And this is where understanding this series of sevens in the Revelation and Genesis are so important, is that we really exist on this timeline. And scripture refers to it as the ages. And the word for age in scripture is the word ion. But there's this other word that is not the same as ion and so like i'm even in part of this movie that's out and it gets the what people don't aren't clear on this and so it gets really confusing but ionios is not simply the same word ion is the noun which means Mm -hmm. age and then there is this other word ionios which is the adjective well so the noun then age is like the the word cheese and if you have an adjective off of cheese, it would be something like cheesy. Well, Mm -hmm. the problem is we don't have an adjective in English for age. We don't have an adjective like agey. So I think the closest translation for Ionios is something like of the age. And scripture talks this way. Um, Jesus talked this way. He says, so um, uh, who will not read? I wrote some of these down for you, David. This is Luke 10. He says, Mm -hmm. who will not receive many times more in this time and in the Ion to come, Ionios life. So in other words, there's an scripture talks about the ions we live in now, and then this ion to come, which is Ionios or of the age. So I think eternal means of God's age. And that I the the beginning of that the the I I draw this out. So picture this in your mind. This is the best way to do this. We're on a timeline. 
and the timeline is the ages and the ages come to an end and the ages have a beginning well jesus mm-hmm. is the end and he's the beginning all at the same time he's not simply on the timeline and i think scripture pictures this as an endless seventh day or an endless sabbath or sometimes it pictures us as, as an eighth day and that is that which is eternal that which that which is beyond the way we experience space and time so scripture talks about us coming to the end of the ages in christ well at the cross and he said now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world cast out now will i be lifted up from this earth he talked about ionios life being at hand or the kingdom being at hand and what Mm -hmm. i think scripture is saying is that you can tap into realities that do not simply exist on this timeline and in fact there is something when we love when we have faith when we hope there's something eternal going on in us in on this temporal timeline it all becomes hugely important when you talk about things like heaven and hell because Mm -hmm. i think scripture is saying heaven is this place that origin is talking about and i don't think it means timeless so much as we're no longer slaves of time so on this timeline i'm a slave to time but i think in the kingdom of heaven it's more like i time will be a slave to me and we all dream about this we all dream about time travel right. and and i think when scripture scripture talks about a fullness of time um and Julian of Norwich has this great line in her vision where she says, the Lord showed me that none of our time will be lost. In other words, God can redeem time because God's not a prisoner of time. Back to what I was saying. Heaven is is eternal life. It's not a slave to this chronological time. Hades is a slave to this eternal, uh, this temporal reality. So when people talk, when it talks about, it pictures Hades as in the depths of the earth. So when people go to Hades, they're trapped in time. And we even say that. Someone's stuck in a moment. Well, if I refuse to forgive, if I refuse to love, if I hang on to a judgment that's in opposition to God, I've just trapped myself on this timeline. Yeah. Because I, And what is judgment? Well, judgment is the boundary between this temporal reality and the immortal reality in which we are being prepared for, the new kingdom that we're being born into. This is so cool when you get to the temple and to the revelation, because the inner sanctuary of the temple is pictured as the age to come, and the outer parts are the the ages, and the new Jerusalem is pictured as eternal. So when scripture talks about the gates of the new Jerusalem always being open, it's, well, they're open in the sense that eternity is always open. But when I enter the new Jerusalem, when I enter the consummated kingdom, I'm going through a space-time barrier and that's why there's so much confusion around the revelation it's because you got all these modernist thinkers stuck in bad science trying to get the revelation to fix fit in our notions of space and time so we have all these stupid arguments about the pre-trib and 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 um soul sleep and all this stuff and the kingdom is at hand in other words um at any moment um, we can we can tap into eternal realities. So you're and, saying eternity is now. Yeah, eternity is now. Now is the point where eternity touches time, and that's that's also the point where I make choices or where a good choice can manifest in this temporal reality. The mind wonderful thing to me is that 
it's Jesus has power even over all time. So he can change the meaning of the past. Um, so through forgiveness, I can go back and have a new meaning to my past. And I think in eternity, we'll somehow even be able to experience our past in a new way. And I'm not a prisoner of, I can trust him now with the future. But all, but so eternity touches time in this present moment. But all of that is really important because when scripture talks about the Ionios fire, I go, well, that's the fire that is the very presence of God. And it also talk about the Ionios punishment. Well, mm-hmm. that's also the fire because what is the punishment for darkness? Well, it's to be exposed to the light. And what is light? Light is eternal. Now, this is crazy, but even modern science says that now, that, that a photon of light doesn't experience time the same way that we do. It's just so cool because for the first time in hundreds of years, I just say to everybody, no, just take the Bible literally. What it says <laughs> is true, and that's what I mean by, by literal. The, the, I don't uh, know if the, I explained that well. It's a big conversation. Well, it's, it's, to me, it's just important for people to realize that you know, you, you're, there's this English word eternal that gets used an awful lot in the Bible, and it's kind of misleading in that that English word eternal. And once you get into the Greek words and the Greek understandings of how all of how time works, you really find out some fascinating things. And this this helped me. There's a passage in the end of uh, uh, Matthew chapter 25 where there's this judgment scene and there's sheep and goats, yeah. and and some of them in English translations go away into eternal life, and the others go into eternal punishment the way it reads in most English Bibles. Yeah. And that yeah. verse was, that verse was used uh, to, to advance the idea that what happens is that God, it, it, that, okay, so there's that we're going to live eternally. You know, time is going to keep on going on forever, or we're going to go into a place of punishment and that time will keep on going on forever. Yeah. But see, and, when you understand this, yeah, yeah. Well, it's that's I love Matthew 25. It's one of my favorite passages now. We'll talk about that a little more. Well, yeah. So let me see if I can just remember it off the top of my head. I I mean, we've preached on it several times and all this stuff's on our website if people want to go to read it. But it's just so cool. When when you take that Matthew 25, literally, it's just awesome. And Jesus, now this is three days before Jesus' crucifixion. He's standing in front of the temple. For thousands of years, Jews have been commanded to offer sheep and goats as sacrifices in the temple. And what do you do? Both the sheep and the goats go into the into the fire. And the fire on the altar in the temple is eternal. And what's the picture? Well, the picture is that you go through the fire into the eternal, into the inner sanctuary, which is the coming age. So that's where Jesus is standing. And mm-hmm. it's three days before his his death. And he says to them, he says, well, let me tell you about the judgment. And it's just so beautiful because he says, you know, if you visited, if someone's sick or in prison, you're a sheep. If you haven't visited someone sick or in prison, you're a goat. Well, just test yourself. Take yourself through that little list that he has and you'll realize, holy crap, I'm a sheep and a goat. And Jesus says, well, in the end, um, you'll be separated like the sheep are separated from the goats. This is so cool, too, because if you go to Israel, how does a shepherd separate sheep from goats? He drives the goats with a switch, 
because goats don't obey they don't follow their they have a mind of their own they're wandering off mm-hmm. everywhere the sheep know the shepherd's voice so he just talks and the sheep walk so all a shepherd has to do to separate the sheep from the goats is start walking and the sheep will follow him and the goats won't well, there is a part of me that follows love, who is my master, and Jesus is the word of love. And there's a part of me that rejects love, which is called sin. And so that puts everyone in a crisis. Jesus tells that story, and, and, then, he, and then he says, so the sheep will go into the eternal life, the Ionius life, and the goats will go into the, the Ionius punishment. Well, they're standing in front of the temple, and for thousands of years, they put sheep and goats in the same fire. And the, and the sacrifices do different things. Well, the punishment, the eternal fire that is God, it, it is punishment, but it's also life because God himself is is life. Yeah, and there's he that Greek word a, Colossus, Col, Colossus or Colossan there too, which yeah. has to do with not with punishing. Not, there, there's one idea where I punish you until my honor is restored. You've offended me. And so I punish you until my honor is restored. Uh, that's Tamoria in the Greek. And yeah. then there's this other word, Colossus or Colossan, that has to do with uh, punishing. But what you're doing there is you're is you're doing it to restore. You're 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 ultimately yeah, you're, you're moving you're, that you're, which is you're pruning. Well, yeah, it was used for pruning. So you're pruning something away. So Jesus puts everybody in this crisis where they realize I'm a sheep and a goat. He's standing in front of the temple where the sheep and goats have been sacrificed as offerings. It all really starts, the, the ultimate sacrifice is the Passover lamb. And when you read it in the Hebrew, it, it, well, he, in English, he makes it very clear. In Part of the problem is they had words for sheep and goats that included both, and English just doesn't have as many words for all the details of four-legged animals as, you know, Hebrew does, where they're all shepherds. But, um, but he, but he's, he's, he says, um, well, it, in the original Passover commandment, it says the the Passover can be taken from the sheep or the goats. So when they celebrated Passover, they used both sheep and goats. Jesus puts them in this crisis and he says in three days is the Passover. And in three days, what happens? Jesus offers himself as our Passover sacrifice. He's also the sin offering. He's also the thank offering. So we don't understand sacrifice as well. And in that the sin offering was offered a lot of times to you would confess your sins. And it was usually a goat. And the, Mm -hmm. the sin offering would take away your sin. But then you would also offer a sheep. And the sheep was a thank offering. It was. It wasn't because you sinned. It was because you're just giving God a gift. Um, it was like it's like when my wife makes roast lamb on Easter. It's not because I sinned. It's because she's saying well, this lamb is really good. And then they would all feast on the lamb in in the temple. So Jesus puts everybody in a crisis, saying you're all going to have to be judged. And then he says, look. And then he reveals, I'm the Passover lamb. What happens when we come to Jesus? At the cross, I confess my sins, which is like the sin offering. And I also receive Christ's righteousness, which is, which is like, the, um, which is like the, the Ola, the burnt offering, or the offering of, of gratitude. Um, and so Jesus puts everybody in a crisis saying, you're all going to need to be judged. And in three days, he reveals the judgment. And the judgment is absolute grace. Back to the story of what Ionios means, sheep and goats go into the same the same fire, which is the presence of God. And 
that's that's what judgment is. That judgment yeah, it kind of makes you look to, look a little bit differently yeah. when Jesus says that everybody will be salted with fire. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think to myself, ooh, you know, I don't want that. Um, but on the other hand, the 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 all the fire of God does is remove from us that which we, we could not for some reason remove on our own. That there's some there is something that has become attached to us that we can't that we can't separate. And so the fire of God is the love of God towards us to separate that from much which, which we for some reason we're not able to separate from ourselves to free us yeah to free it, us up. yeah it, exactly exactly that's right and i think that's a really good one of, okay well, and, one of the things go ahead yeah oh no well and all of this stuff is pictured in the temple so this is where I, you know i used to hate all the old testament stuff the sacrifices and everything till they began to realize no god is the whole time he's telling us the story of our salvation and uh, you know there's a the, the the word is called a knife. Well, it's there to cut away from me the things which would kill me and to free me. And the fire is there to burn away what's not true about me and purify me like gold or, or silver. And so that I can enter that inner sanctuary, which is the seventh day. So back to that timeline, the thing that I, be, I realized in Genesis, and, and it's amazing how this fits with modern physics, but there are these six days that are temporal. They're part of the ages of this world. But then everything changes on the seventh day when everything is good. Yeah. Well, that that's pictured throughout the Revelation. It's pictured also in places like Zechariah. And then it's pictured at the cross. So at the cross, Jesus cries, it is finished. He cries, it is finished on the sixth day of the week. Um, and scripture makes a big deal of the sixth hour of the day, which is the sixth day of creation. It's the end of people believing that they create themselves. So when I come to Jesus, I receive life of the coming age because I stop believing that I'm my own savior and begin to believe that Jesus is my own savior. My body still has to live in this temporal reality, but my soul, my psyche, I've died to that old psyche and I've begun to live to this new psyche. So the day I die, well, I'm not stuck in that old psyche anymore. I'm ready to enter the kingdom. So Jesus really is the only way because Jesus is the truth about every one of us. And that truth is eternal. One um, of the things that's interesting to me about kind of what's happening right now is uh, I, I think you're, I think you're in kind of interesting position because like you said, you, you have the PC USA background, which is kind of the liberal side of it. And you have the evangelical Presbyterian, which is the conservative side of it. And what you're trying to say is there's a way in which we need to move beyond this uh, liberal conservative divide that um, that that actually if, if, if there's a if I can say if there's a liberal idea, you know, that we need to sort of demythologize scripture and 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 make religion scientific or something in in a kind of a negative way, kind of a reductionist way. Um and and then on the on the conservative side, you got some you got some problems too. But anyway, what you're 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 saying, okay, there's some, but there's some good there's some good to, to both of these, and we just need to kind of bring everything together now. And there's a reality of the things things don't become less real; they become more real. Yeah, absolutely. Get, talk a little bit about that. Well, I I think liberalism in many ways is is a reaction to bad theology 
by conservatives. So, um, and and conservatives have a lot of bad theology in reaction to the Enlightenment and I'll call them modernistic notions of space and time, not not modern. So I think and, and what I guess what concerns me about people becoming aware of the love of God and and people kind of in our movement is that they'll resort to liberalism uh, because of what they have seen some of these truths about God. The problem with liberalism is they just start undercutting scripture, which is the very thing that we're, that we're starting to see. And we don't have to do that. And because I grew up in liberalism, I think I, I see it more clearly, but liberalism is, is largely, you know, people have all sorts of reasons, but there's a really great reason for liberalism and that is that there are a lot of people out there that say, no, I've got to believe that God is love. I can't believe in God if I don't believe that he's really gracious and loving. But then they go back to the scripture and it's been explained to them that, no, there's this place of endless conscious torment. And so therefore they have to do something with scripture. And you, you start to diminish scripture and say, well, it doesn't really mean those things. We have to demythologize it. Those are all the big words that that scholars that scholars use. And I think the the wonderful realization that that I want to say to everybody is no you, you have to take the bible more literally but by more literally I mean you take it more seriously um and you, you know so the and there's something wonderful about that old conservatism and that is they say well I want to hang on to I want to hang on to truth no matter whether I like it or not so the conservatives have hung on to what they think is truth and kind of thrown out love. And ironically, it's the Bible that says God is love, but then mm-hmm. they have to fudge on that. They have to fudge on the Bible versus banned by Bible believing believers. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to fudge on scripture and yet they're trying to hang on to scripture. On the other hand, you have the liberals that say God is love, but they've kind of had to throw up. They, in their mind, they've thrown out scripture in order to say that. But ironically, it's scripture that s- says that. And yet there's a bunch of other scripture that they can't reconcile. I think a lot of that is is a lot of that is a result of some a really bad worldview for the last few hundred years. Modern science. It's also the result of religion wanting to control. There are all sorts of factors. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think the beautiful thing now is uh, scriptures. Uh, it's easier to put put it this way. It's easier to believe this scripture now than it has been for fifteen hundred years. And I I just I. It kind of breaks my heart to see believers throwing out scripture well, in I'm, order I'm to hang on the to the idea that God is love. One of the reasons I'm excited about people getting to know you and your work is that sometimes people will say, well, this Christian Universals thing, you know, I could, but the problem is I have to go with scripture. And I don't want to say, okay, well, you know, meet my friend Peter Hyatt. Yeah. Uh, he's going, he's going with, he's going with scripture, you know? Uh, so it's not, it's not an abandonment of scripture. And another thing that happened was, uh, I'm in the, I went to a pretty, probably a liberal, what you would think of as a liberal seminary. So I'm real familiar with sort of the liberal side of Christianity. And it was very focused on the justice movements and the need to care for the poor and how the, that the kingdom of God is good news for the poor right now. So there needs yeah. to be some way that that practically comes true. And and there's there's a lot to that. And that does make sense. Uh, but then if you talked about uh, what happens after we die, they were like, well, you know what? That's you're missing the point. 
the the kingdom of God is right now. We don't need to talk about what it, that that evangelicals talk about that. They are they talk about what happens after you die. But there are a lot of people that are concerned about what happens uh, after you die, and, and then so when so then but you know sort of the evangelicals can get so concerned on what happens after you die that you can miss out on the importance of the kingdom of God right now and justice and caring for the environment and all those types of and all those types of things. And then another thing that happened was uh, I was starting to say, uh, okay, I believe in the in the ultimate. Uh, salvation of all, and people would say, "Oh, well, that makes you, uh, that makes you a liberal." But then my liberal friends were saying, "Wait a second, you're saying that that ultimately you think everybody is going to recognize Christ, that Jesus is going to be Lord, and everybody's going to gladly confess that." What about all the Muslim folks and the Jewish folks and the Buddhist people and all those? So, so my liberal friends were thinking I was conservative. My conservative friends were thinking I was liberal. Anyway, it, there's just all of this that's kind of swirling around, and I appreciate how you're trying to, I think, trying to to take the best from all sides of that and, and put it all together. Yeah, I well, see, this is where I have so much hope for doing away with this idea of endless conscious torment. Because once you do away with the idea and you begin to analyze the arguments in every direction, doing away with that unites, this is what we talked about last time, it really unites the, the best impulses of Calvinism and the best impulses of Arminianism, and, and it heals that divide. I think it also heals the divide between liberals and conservatives. And ironically, I have a talk where I kind of map this out, and it, it forms a picture of a cross because um, between the Calvinists and the Arminians, I think the beautiful mm-hmm. truth is that we have all been predestined for freedom. Um, that's that God is creating in us a good free will. I think the beautiful truth in the middle between the liberals and the conservatives is that Jesus is truth in love and truth in love hurts. It looks like a man hanging on a cross. So God is both love. He just loves everybody. And he's also the truth. So he deals with the truth. And, and scripture, I think, testifies to the cross. It testifies to the whole thing. So um, there are good impulses in liberalism, and I think there are also really good impulses in conservatism. And I think the design of the evil one is to rip all of us apart. And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that when we believe it, it brings all of us together, literally in the body of Christ. So um, Christ is absolutely central to, I think, everything scripture is saying and everything I want to say, because he's the He's the word of God, and the beautiful gospel is he's successful. One of the things that was interesting to me is when I started thinking about Christian universalism, it was actually one of the nice things about the church I'm in, the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, is that we don't ask people to sign off on any big doctrinal statement. We just just come if you believe in God, if you want to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, come with us, read the Bible to the best of your understanding. Don't don't judge other people. Let us love together and grow in Christ together. So it makes a really open kind of situation. So when I came to want to think more about Christian universalism, I wasn't doing anything wrong. I wasn't doing anything wrong in my denomination. I wasn't doing anything that I wasn't telling other people to do, which was keep searching the scriptures, keep finding your your best, you know, your your best understandings. Now in in our denomination then, 
That doesn't mean, whereas I can be a Christian universalist if I want to, that doesn't mean that everybody will be, but that means that that's, a, that's an opinion that, that I can come to. But then I started thinking, I'd, I'd like to go and go to some conferences or, or find out where people are gathering to talk about this. And one of the, the first conference that I went to was at the Denver, your church in, in, in Denver, at the sanctuary there. And I got there and it was basically an evangelical kind of worship setting. And I was basically surrounded by, it's like, I'm in this whole group basically of evangelicals. Seems mostly the the worship form is evangelical. The whole setting feels evangelical. They are proclaiming this with the kind of this gospel, this good news gospel of the restoration of all things and ultimate. They're proclaiming this like evangelicals with that type of enthusiasm. You're a very enthusiastic preacher. Uh, you know, so it's just really interesting how it was, yeah. it was people with roots in the evangelical church that are kind of leading, uh, this modern renewal. Now there's other folks like David Bentley Hart, you know, he comes out of the, uh, Anglican. Yeah. The, but now he's the Eastern. So there's an Eastern Orthodox part to this, you know, so it's not just, but it was interesting. What was surprising to me was how much energy was coming from people with evangelical, what I'll call Bible-believing backgrounds, who had started, as you would say, believing the believing the verses banned by Bible-believing believers and had seen through to a truly scriptural understanding of a better gospel or a forgotten gospel of God's relentless love. Yeah, and I, I imagine that's you know, the evil one, I think, is always, he's always tempting us in all these directions. And I think the uh, temptation of liberals is to really, they'll say everybody is saved. And what they really mean by that is nobody is saved. And in other words, there's nothing we need to be saved from. So you tend to diminish sin. And so getting saved from nothing just isn't all that exciting. And, you know, you get in, ironically, then you really get into social gospel stuff, which I go, every Christian should be about social justice. I mean, justice is justice. It's it's not. That's a whole other topic. But anyway, we need to be all about loving our neighbor. But what? But when you really think there's no sin, you you start getting into social justice issues and then judging other people out who aren't into social justice issues. And the evil one just trips you, tricks you back into the same old garbage. Um, so liberals tend to believe there's we don't need to be saved, and conservatives tend to believe we we can save ourselves and we're the only ones that have done it. Well, I think on the conservative side, when people take that seriously, when they take scripture seriously, when they take the the law seriously, it brings them to a point of despair where they realize, I, if I'm really honest with the text, I'm not going to make it, which is beautiful right. because that's at the point which you just, where you realize, no, I really am a sinner. I Something is desperately wrong with me. And that's the point where you realize God's salvation. And then you know, as they journey down that path and they they realize, well, God, I, I'm so grateful for your grace. I want this for other people, people that really walk that journey and then find, oh, my goodness, God wants to save people more than I do. And they really do need to be saved. In other words, to not trust God really is to already be trapped by Hades and to be sinking into that place of darkness. Well, I think they're people that are really profoundly excited about grace. So I think when people come from the left, 
I think I would imagine that the excitement comes from realizing, oh, this isn't something I made up. This is really true. This is the truth. Mm-hmm. And and when you come from the right, you get really excited to go, oh my goodness, the truth is that God is love. And so I, I you know, I'm hoping that people are coming at this from both sides. I think the hard thing about preaching from this place, because I, I mean, I really think in some ways I preach the best sermons I've ever preached, but liberals are offended because I quote the scripture like it's true, and conservatives are offended because I also quote the scripture like it's true, just the ones they don't like. So well, yeah, it's a um, challenging spot, but I think on the other side of this is, I hope, a reformation. Well, you know, and there was, uh, I, I was, I've been reading I've been reading about origin. I've been reading lately a, a lot of the early church, and their um, their understanding was that the Christian vocation was one of martyrdom. It was one of laying down one light, laying, and for them it was a, it was a literal one. Uh, but John Bear uh, makes the idea, it makes the remark said, but even the ones that went out into the desert, they were going in their minds, they were going out to fight the demonic. That they were they were going to lay down their lives in that spiritual battle, and then he said, "You could even think of marriage as martyrdom because what you're doing is you're giving your life over to the one to whom you have married." Uh, yeah. In other words, um, so um, what we're really getting to do, I think, in this time, is to sort of lay down, I guess. The what whatever the acceptable models are to take up a, to take up a new one, but I think that we we are in a time that's every bit as transformational as the Protestant Reformation was. But now what we're trying to do now what we're getting to do is we're getting to question those things that they didn't get to question in the Protestant yeah. Reformation. Well, you know, one thing that we we haven't mentioned, David, is there's another radical change since the Reformation. So if you think about the Reformation, you lived in a little German town or a little Swiss village, and everybody in that town was a Christian. So, you, you know, and when the Reformation came through, you all converted. So when you talked about people that would go to hell, for instance, you, you were thinking about people on the other side of the world that you didn't know. But mm-hmm. now we live in the society where I have friends in Pakistan or wherever, or Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so all of these problems have become um, very, a lot more existential. Like, God, would you really torture Ahmed, who I know at work endlessly, and mm-hmm. yet I see love in him? Um, so anyway, I, I don't know why I, I mentioned that, because you, you, were, you were driving at something else a minute ago. Yeah, well, the whole Protestant, the, the idea is that we're at a new, we're at a time that's like the Protestant Reformation. We're at a new Reformation. We have new technology, new ability to communicate. We're more interconnected. We're, we're interacting with people from other faiths aren't just theoretical. We know them now. They're our neighbors, yeah. you know, and so that's, I think that's, that's driving all of this. So it's a very tumultuous time. Well, but and there's a I, lot the, the thing too. I'm hopeful for, and I mean, I, I, cause I, you know, a lot of times I go, God, why did you walk me down this road? I think, you know, people like you, David, are so important because you, you know, you wrote this book on you, your, your book on hell, grace saves all. And, mm-hmm. um, I think that's so important in getting rid of this fly in the ointment. What I get excited about is well, now preaching the gospel on the other side. And so I, I think that's what Jesus has really 
called me to. And so, you know, people struggle with a lot of the, the verses. That's why we have our website and I have catalogs on there to help people find verses. Mm -hmm. But really the gospel becomes so beautiful on the other side of this argument. And I try to tell people, you really don't have to, you really don't throw anything out. Um, the only the only thing you throw out is this endless conscious torment and possibly some bad forms of um, penal substitutionary atonement theory. But those should have been thrown out anyway. The, the thing you get in return is an entire new creation. And you do have to die. And I think it, in Greek, it's important to realize that when Jesus says you must lose your life to find it, the word he uses there for life isn't Zoe, which is, you know, the word that's used when it says Jesus is the life. He's the Zoe. But the word uh -huh. that's used as translated life in those verses is psyche. You have to lose your psyche in order to find it. And that psyche is that mental construct. The old psyche, I think, is Mises and the new psyche is built on 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 Jesus. And um, that that. That is difficult in any age and any time because another word mm -hmm. for that old psyche is the flesh. I have to die to human flesh, and th th that's what my old psyche is. One of the things that uh, I get, I get emails and Facebook messenger uh, messages from people that are, uh, I've started, they're saying, okay, I've started to believe this way, but I don't have fellowship now. And you've got some opportunities for people to connect with your church in, in, in Denver. You've got resources on your website. So would you just tell us about your, about your website and your church and how people can get connected with the, with what's going on in Denver? Yeah, sure. So the website that we have a church, a regular church website, pretty much geared towards people that live in Denver and talks about church, you know, picnics and salads and stuff like that. We also have a website that is called www.relentlesslove.org. It's relentless-love.org. Relentless-love.org. Yeah, relentlesslove.org, but there's a dash between relentless and love because I think it's probably some porn site or something had, had the other <laughs> domain, right? So, yeah, that's that's the problem with the internet. So the but dash anyway, is on, important, relentless-love.org. O-O-O-R-G. Yeah, so, and on that site, we have um, all my sermons and I have tools for talking about the hell issue. But, uh, and then, but then on... The church side, which you can get to this website, well, well there's a place on the Relentless Love site that says connect. And um, Gary Boschman uh, has a has a group that connects people in different areas for online discussions. Um, right. Like at our church, I'm going to start a class, I think, on Tuesdays at six. If people want to discuss the sermons and we have Zoom, with COVID now, we've started having Zoom classes. Um, but you, right. and you can get to our just our church site is just the sanctuary denver uh dot org um and, the sanctuary denver dot org yeah and uh there we have opportunities for like online uh classes now we, we you know we have some people in different parts of the country that will watch online and then they'll communicate uh -huh. with me um but you know i i encourage people will gosh, you, you can still go to your old church or whatever and then tap into sermons here and get on, on Facebook, discuss things with people, be a yeah. part of classes or get together with a group and 
Well, I've got um, a friend. I've got a friend who's a, a minister, and he says that you know it used to be that you would think, oh, you, I can only be a member of one church. I can only participate in one church. But he says now with this COVID, you know, people are listening into you know multiple different churches in the sense that I can only be attached or participate in in one fellowship. That might be something that changes as a result of what we've all gone through. Yeah, you know, so I tell people, look, you have a local church that has a youth group and a choir and child care. I go, well, we'll go there and then be a part of uh, w- watching sermons at the sanctuary, too, or being in discussion groups or whatever. Um, and then be a be a seed. I, I mean, I really think this is good news, and I feel like I'm sort of called to preach good news to the church because the church is in bondage to a lie. But yeah, people can be a part of, I think you said it really well. God doesn't look down and see all these churches. He sees his, his body. Well, I really appreciate, uh, appreciate that. What are some things we're going to wrap up here in just a second, but what are some things, some really hopeful things? I mean, that because you're, you're putting a lot out there. You're putting a lot of energy out there. You're doing you're doing a lot, and, and sometimes you, you you're not seeing like your whole church all filled up, and you're not. But but there are positive things that are happening. What are what are just some of the the positive things that have happened that that give you hope and keep you going? Well, I guess the biggest thing, <laughs> man. Maybe I could tell you this story sometime, but. My journey, I can tell at a lot of different levels. And at one level, there's, you know, struggles with churches and theology. At another level, God has just like, he's beat the tar out of me, but in a wonderful way to show me that he builds his church. So the crazy thing is that over the years, there was a time in my life where I felt like I could do certain things and I could follow the formulas and I could make the church grow. And about mm-hmm. 14 years ago, God just miraculously, and I have some crazy, wild, miraculous stories that, to affirm this. It was like he came along and said, okay, Peter, we're done with that now. Now I'm going to build my church and you're going to work for me, which it has really been a challenge because over and over, I've for 14 years, I'm like, God, everything's going to fall apart this week, you know, and then he'll do something amazing to keep it going. And it, but even right now with the with the whole COVID thing, um, I think old institutions are kind of being torn apart and something new is going to emerge on the other side. So what that looks like for me is I complain to my wife how nobody was at church. And then I, I get online and find out like Daniel Knutson, just he's making a movie interviewing yeah. people that were at our church, you know, and I'm going, gosh, half of this movie is like people that right. came to our conference and, or I interviewed them and I thought, well, that stunk. No one's ever going to watch that. And lo and behold, that's happening. Or another perfect example is my friend Haziel in the Philippines. Um, I had another, a guy working at the church and said, Hey, let's make a movie about hell. So we did this, you know, you, this thing on YouTube, hallelujah and hell had tons of views. And then Haziel in the Philippines happens to watch it. I, I gave him some material when he was at the conference you were at, David. And yeah. he's been preaching this stuff all over his island in the Philippines of Mindoro. And all these churches have been transformed and changed, but it's been hard for him. So it, it really feels like, wow, God. Um, and, and when this is what he, well, this is what, 
God, that's too many stories. But what we were sitting in, 14 years ago, I was sitting in a huge denominational meeting about to get canned. It was just crazy. And our church was second biggest in our presbytery, which was the western half of the United States. And we we're at the church of the biggest. I'm sitting there. And my wife, who I started dating just because she was cute in high school, um, and then lo and behold, God's talking to her this whole time. She turns to me and she says, Peter, I just heard God say, Peter's church will be a church without walls. I will be a wall of fire around her and the glory in her midst. And I said to Susan, I said, have you been reading the book of Zechariah? And she said, no, what's Zechariah? I said, well, you just quoted Zechariah. I think because um, in Zechariah, he says that Jerusalem will be the, a city without walls. I will be the wall of fire around her and the glory in her midst. And she said to me, well, you know me. I don't read the Bible. Um, but God basically said, um, and I and as know it's not my church, but he's saying this church will be a church without walls. And I guess I've been surprised to discover that's really true. I mean, sometimes I wonder if we'll actually have any physical walls, which is, you know, tough in Colorado where it gets cold. But mm -hmm. it seems to me that he, he's saying, no, this is something that has to seep through my whole church. So it's not about starting a new organization or whatever. It's about throwing your bread on the water, like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, about speaking the truth and believing that the truth is a seed and the truth is a word. And, um, this I feel like what he's been speaking to me, and so Peter, you don't you don't have to worry about my word. My word can take care of itself. You just have to show up and say what I ask you to say. So that's what I guess that's what gives me hope. But I'm but I really do think that if there's a reformation coming, which I think there is, and I pray that there is, it's something that the Holy Spirit has to do. So um, to God be the glory, because He's the one that transforms hearts and. You know, if you've studied, studied church history, you know that sometimes the Holy Spirit just moves in a certain way and transforms mm -hmm. the church for a time. And so I'm praying that this is a, something the Holy Spirit will just now do. Well, I tell people that, um, you know, when it comes to this Christian universalism uh, thing, this wasn't really something I was trying to do. I was going along in ministry and I was believing that God was good and that God would save everybody that was savable. There might be some that just aren't savable, but God is good. And God. And then there were some folks that started coming to my church and who were really interested in Christian universalism, and they challenged me to think better about it and to go back and look at it some more. And in our church, we don't have one single doctrine that everybody has to agree to, and the job of the minister is not to be right about everything, but to encourage everybody to continue to be on the journey together. So I'm on the journey with them. So they challenged me. So I, this was 2011, 2012. So I go online and I think, oh, well, this, we've got the internet now. Let me find out what's been written about Christian universalism since I really looked into it, you know, 10, 12 years ago. Well, I find a book by Thomas Talbot uh, named The Inescapable Love of God. I find a book by a guy named, uh, well, he wrote it under the name Gregory, Gregory McDonald, but his real name is Robin Perry, the evangelical uh, universalist. I found out there's this guy out there named George Saris, and he's writing. He's he's working on a book, but it hadn't been published, uh, but it hadn't been published yet. And I start I start finding out about all these things. Then I hear, oh, then I find out, oh, there's a conference that's going to be happening in Denver. This guy named Peter Hyatt, and so I end up going to Denver. I get to meet. I get to meet all of these people. Um, 
I get to be, I get to feel, you know, connected with all of that. Then that gets me thinking, I'd like to be a part of this conversation. And that gets me thinking, how could I, what could I bring to this conversation? So that gets my book going, which then ultimately leads to my podcast, which then ultimately sort of ends up, which seems like sort of a completion of a circle. I'm interviewing you on my podcast and you're the one, one of the main ones that helped me to go <laughs> on this journey. Yeah. Well, that's so beautiful. And I'm going, yeah, here you go. This is an, an example. And I, I think what's, I think what is so holy about it, what God loves about it, what you said, David, I didn't, you didn't set out to do this and I didn't set out to do this either. I mean, I, my plan was to build a big church, publish a couple books and just um, enjoy uh, being, you know, I wouldn't say it this way, but being a success or whatever. And mm-hmm. I think I got to this place where rather, well, now I think about it, I'm almost 60 now, but at the time I was rather young going, wow, I, I have this. And yet at the same time, I'm preaching through scripture and I'm just getting so excited about what I'm reading there. And it was just getting me in trouble. And I didn't want to get in trouble. It's just that Jesus was so, or is so beautiful and scripture is so cool. And I wanted to talk about it. And (laughs) I think that's what God likes because that's called worship. And so what's your podcast? Your podcast is worship. Your book is worship. I mean, and that's what it is. I believe to begin to live in the eternal life is to begin to live worship. And so I think part of what God keeps doing with me personally is going, okay, Peter, I'm doing this thing here. I'm doing that thing there. You're not in control of it. And if you think you're in control of it, if you, if you, you, then you're starting to trap yourself, but um, you're free when you worship. And so I feel like God keeps calling me back to worship saying, I want you to, I want you to stand up and talk about me and, you know, sure. If David Artman calls you and says, be on a podcast, do that. But you you just enjoy worshiping me. And I think it's beautiful that that's how God chooses to, to change the world. And because that's what eternity is. That's, you know, in Revelation five, John looks, or he hears, he, he hears every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them. That's, that's everything praising the lamb upon the throne and gosh i just you know this has been a hard journey but i feel liberated when in these moments when i just catch a glimpse of jesus and can just start talking about how cool um how cool jesus is and so that's when i'm personally free and lo and behold that's when god bears fruit and boy that's another now there's a big conversation yeah. too. That yeah, I told you. I told the, you. Yeah, I, I told you earlier that you know I didn't grow up in the church, and I kind of found my way in. I read C.S. Lewis, and then I was, you know, I found this Christian church, Disciples of Christ, and I always felt a little bit like an outsider. And then I got encouraged to go to seminary, and and then I just thought, well, I'll see if I can help other people who might feel like outsiders too to be included and welcomed. And then you know I came to this amazing you know, vision of the God who is going to restore all of creation. And, um, but sometimes when I tell people that they're, you know, they're just, I'm just not sure if that's Christian or not. And I say, well, 
you know, um, let me introduce you to some people. And I think once you listen to them, if it, you're going to, if you're going to feel the sincerity of their Christian spirit, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about you is it just comes through your entire life. You're growing up. I mean, you, you have just been steeped in this your whole life. And so that this, and that this has come to you, I think, I think helps other people. And, and so I'm just really glad to get to introduce you uh, to my audience and to encourage them to uh, check out your church and your website. I hope, I don't know if, there, if we're going to have another conference at the, in Denver sometime. I hope we do. If, 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 if we do, I'll be there. Yeah. But I just want to thank you for being willing to go on this journey and for the gifts that you've, uh, that you've given to all of us. So thank you, Peter Hyatt. Yeah, and thank you, David Artman. Thank you for this and for your book and your friendship. All right. Okay, well, hopefully we'll talk again. Okay. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, Let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.